The text that we're going to study today is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 7 to 14. The Apostle Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. This is God's word. So today we're starting a new sermon series called Destroyer of the Gods. Uh, the name comes from actually a book by a scholar named Larry Hurtado. He wrote this book called Destroyer of the Gods about the distinctive characteristics of the early Christian church in its first couple centuries. Um, I read this book back in the fall and I was just struck by the practical nature of it for us as modern Christians. As we think about what it means to be a Christian in the 21st century, like we said last week, we want our church to reflect the way that Jesus constituted his church some 2,000 years ago. And what Hurtado's book allows us to do is to go back sort of in time and see what made the Christian church distinct from its culture. What was the, the driving force behind this movement that took 11 men who were scared in an upper room on that Pentecost day to become a movement that took over the Roman Empire in a little less than three centuries? And so for the next five weeks, we're going to be studying this book in a series that we've entitled Destroyer of the Gods. Um, now, the question you might be asking yourself right away is, why study a book? Um, I mean, don't we already have the Bible? Isn't this supposed to be about the Bible? And uh, that's a really good question. And the answer is yes. Um, but let me answer it with maybe a little bit more detail. First of all, the reason to study a book, even in church, is calorie density. Uh, you maybe understand this if you've ever tried to lose weight. Uh, you know that diets will try to teach you to eat things that are less calorie dense rather than things that are more calorie dense so that you feel full with fewer calories. So a, a pound of salad has fewer calories than a pound of chocolate. And so what diets will encourage you to do is eat something like salad because it will fill your stomach. It will take up space in your stomach, make you feel full with fewer calories so that you can lose weight. The thing is with, with intellectual ideas, you kind of want the exact opposite thing though. You actually want things that are calorie dense when it comes to what you're learning. Let me explain it like this. So my sermons usually last 30 to 35 minutes, save last week. <laughs> um, and, and in those 30 to 35 minutes is contained about five to seven, maybe eight hours of research. So I spent some time writing, I spent some time memorizing my sermon, um, I spent some time putting together slides and notes and that sort of thing. But the, the research portion of what I do for a sermon is really about five to eight hours or so. So you get to spend 30 or 35 minutes of your time on a Sunday morning 
receiving the effort of five to seven, eight hours of work. So you're getting like 15 times return on your time investment, right? A sermon is a very calorie dense, so to speak, way of learning. A book is even more so. Now, some of these numbers, of course, are a little bit tough to nail down because, you know, books are different lengths and they have different types of content. But the average book takes about a year for an author to write. And so just for the sake of argument, let's say he's working four hours a day on that book for 250 days of the year. He's not working on weekends. He's not working on holidays, but he's working the basic work days of the year. That works out to a thousand hours of work on a book. How long does it take you to read a book? Um, Again, these numbers are hard to nail down, but I think we could all basically say maybe about 20 hours of work, of reading, right? Um, Some a little bit less, some a little bit more, but that's a pretty general general number. Well, see what you're doing when you read for 20 hours, you get a thousand hours worth of work. And that's not a 15 times investment. Uh, that is a, uh, what, what I, I wrote it down here because I'm not good at math, a 50 times investment. <laughs> um, that's, that's a really good reason to read books. And by the way, just like it's a total side tangent, this is why you should read books and not read the internet because people don't put as much, nearly as much work into the internet as they do into real books. If you want to get smart, read books. Um, but to get back to my, my point here, $1,000 of work distilled into 20 hours of reading. Now, what I'm going to do for you in, in these sermons is hopefully take that 1,000 hours of work and distill it into five 30 to 35-minute sermons. And that's not 50 times. That's 400 times your return on investment. Um, and so my, my hope is that by doing these series on books occasionally, of course, we'll, we'll just read through the Gospels, we'll read through Acts, we'll read through the Epistles and the Old Testament in other series this year. But taking some time occasionally to go through a book gives us the chance to really interact with some, some well-researched, nuanced, thoughtful ideas. Uh, the second reason is I, I want you to see that Christianity can hold its own when it, it's faced with the big ideas of the world. I think it can be easy to sort of silo ourselves into the Bible and only the Bible. And that's not wrong. But what that doesn't do is it it doesn't allow the Bible to sort of bear its fangs a little bit and show how it can stand up with the big ideas of the world. Um, That's part of the reason why I picked Larry Hurtado's book. Not only is Hurtado just a fantastic scholar and well-respected in many different areas of of biblical scholarship and religious scholarship, um, but he is not biased towards my worldview or your worldview. Um, I'm pretty sure that Larry Hurtado is a Christian, um, but if he is, he does not make it obvious, neither in any sort of explicit way in like an author's note or in his writing. In fact, as, as he writes, my sense of him is that he is not even really convinced that the Bible is authentic from the authors of the Bible or that the Bible is God's word. Um, now, what is really interesting to me about him is that he was a pastor at one time, um, which should make you think about anybody who calls themselves pastor. Don't just trust them because they say that they're a pastor. Um, but, but the point is, as we read this, we have to understand that he's not coming from our same theological bias. And that's really important because what he writes actually agrees with what we believe. He's just not biased to say it. Um, and that actually shows that Christianity has the ability to stand up to robust scholarship um, for people who are really intelligent and really good at, at researching these things. I also kind of like Hurtado because he's kind of a homeboy. He, uh, <laughs> he got his start um, academically at Regent College in Vancouver and then at the University of Manitoba. Um, he ended up in Scotland and he's from the States, but he kind of got his start in Canada. So I was a little bit excited about that. In any case, he wrote this book 
um, destroyer of the gods. And the point of the book is to show you the unique characteristics of the early Christian church. And uh, maybe just to start, I want to give you sort of a historical perspective on like where we are in history and what is happening. Because for some of you, this might not just be common knowledge. Um, Jesus of Nazareth dies, rises, and ascends to heaven around the year 30 AD. There's a little bit of, of historical debate about that, but not much. It's within a year or two of that, 30 AD. The Edict of Milan, which is put into place to um, stop the outright persecution of Christians, is done in 313 AD. 313 AD. So a little bit less than 300 years between the moment Jesus essentially commissions his church and the moment that Christianity becomes a legal religion in the Roman Empire. During those 300 or so years, the Christian church grows from Jesus and his 11 remaining disciples into a movement that takes over the Roman Empire. Um, the reason that the, the Christians are ultimately allowed to exist in the Roman Empire is because they are so numerous. Um, the numbers jump, and I'm getting these numbers probably a little bit more round than, than I would like, but in the first century, there's maybe about five to 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. By the second century, there's about 200,000. By the, the third century, they're, they're in the millions of, of Christians who exist in the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire just has to kind of deal with this fact that the Christian movement has become a huge idea in, in their empire. And so they, they give this Edict of Milan. And so what Hurtado does is he basically lays out just the historical facts of what happened. And that's kind of one of the things I love about him too, is he doesn't really deal with so much of the why, like why did the Christian church ex expand the way that it did? He just says, here were the things that were unique about them. Here's what people were talking about when they talked about Christians. And so in that sense, um, Hurtado is going to give us a really good historical perspective, but hopefully by going through um, the, the books of the Bible, the sections of the Bible that I, I picked for this series, we'll also get like the theological underpinnings. What motivated the Christians to live the way Hurtado says that they lived? Okay, so the book has five chapters. Um, this first chapter that we're working on today is where Hurtado lays out just the facts of the persecution of the Christians. Like, what did people think about them? How did they treat them? Um, in the next four chapters, the next four weeks of the series, he gives four distinct characteristics of the Christian church, and we'll work through those at that time. But for today, we're just going to talk about the facts of Christianity in the early Roman Empire. Like, what was happening? How were they seen? How were they behaving in general? Okay. And so uh, one thing that I want you to understand, and maybe the biggest point for today, um, and if you're taking notes, I think this would be a really smart thing for you to, to write down, is to understand this idea that um, Christianity was very rarely, if ever, persecuted for its theological convictions. Like what Christianity believed and why it was attacked were almost never the same thing. So Hurtado lays this out that really the only people who cared about the, the Christians' theological convictions were the Jews. And the reason for that is that they realized that New Testament Christianity was essentially saying that Old Testament theology, Old Testament Christianity, was no longer valid because Jesus had fulfilled the law. So it was essentially an affront, an attack on their whole religious system. And so they did care about the theological convictions of the Christians. But the Romans did not care about this. Uh, the Romans did not care about the theological convictions of the Christians. They took no time to research into those things because it just frankly was not on their radar. Um, we have a number of examples of this. So uh, Tacitus, who is, in most people's opinion, probably the greatest Roman historian, um, he writes that the issue with the Christians is that they just wouldn't uh, comply with social norms. So he doesn't write anything about their theological convictions. He just says they were kind of weird. They did weird stuff. Like, they didn't act the way that everybody else acted. 
Um, we have the writings of Galen. Galen was a second century doctor. He wrote that the Christians seemed to be pretty good people, but that they were, uh, they were gullible. And what it seems that he means by that is that the Christians had this sense that they would just like always believe the best in people. Um, and he said that Galen says this is a bad idea because in their culture, you need to be cynical in order to be able to discern like who's on your side and who's not. And he said the Christians just were like so generously gullibly believing in people <laughs> that he said that it's probably not good to associate with them because they're, they're not cynical. Um, Lucian, a famous comedian in Rome, he wrote a satirical theater production about a Christian man. And so he's, he's making fun of the Christians in this play. But one of the things that he says about the Christians in this play is that um, the, the Christians are so generous that you can take advantage of them. And so because of that, they're, they're dumb, right? Like you can go to a Christian and you can tell him that you're in need and he'll just give you money or he'll just provide something for you. And you don't even have to be in need. You can just lie to them and the Christians will, will give to you. Um, we have the writings of a man named Celsus. Celsus wrote a critique of Christianity in which he said, the reason you don't want to hang out with Christians, the reason Christians are bad is they hang out with the wrong type of people. So they seem to always be around like the dregs of society, the people that are the outcasts that no one wants to be around. And if you would hang out with a Christian, that's going to hurt your social clout. Um, and so you shouldn't hang out with Christians. Uh, but probably the most insightful and interesting uh, old like writings that we have about the Romans' opinions of the Christians is a series of letters between um, Emperor Trajan, so he's early second century, and uh, Pliny the Younger is one of his generals. And uh, in there, in the conversation between Pliny and Trajan, um, what comes out is that they really have two big problems with the Christians. The first is that they are not participating in the religion of Rome. And this isn't actually a religious problem as much as it is an economic problem. So for the Romans, um, religion was more of an economic activity than it was particularly a spiritual activity. There was, a, of course, a spiritual element to it, but their issue, the, the way that they practiced their religion was a lot of like, transactional things. So you would go to the temple and you would make, of course, your sacrifices, but you would also buy some statues. You would also do this and this with your money and you buy and sell. And, and um, the, the temples for the Romans became these places of commerce more than really spirituality. Um, and we actually see this in the Bible um, when we go to Ephesus and there's the temple of Artemis there and the, the people who are creating the little statues that you're supposed to worship with for the temple of Artemis get really angry at the Christians because the Christians are ruining their economy. <laughs> um, and so from, from Trajan's point of view, the issue with the Christians is not that they're worshiping Jesus or that they're, they're giving offerings to Jesus, but that they're not giving offerings to one of their main sources of, of economic activity in the Roman Empire. The second issue is that they won't acknowledge the divinity of the Roman Empire. So um, the, the emperor in Rome was considered to be sort of uh, appointed by divine right. So differently than us, we have a democracy. We vote for a person to be in power or a party to be in power. Um, in, in their case, of course, that wasn't how they operated. There was this sort of divine nature to the Roman emperor. And so since the, the Christians wouldn't say Caesar is Lord, Caesar is divine, um, they were actually making a political statement about the emperor. Now, from the Christian's point of view, understand they're making a religious statement, but, but Rome interprets it as a political statement about the, the validity of the emperor of Rome. And so Trajan says, we need to kill Christians. Like he literally says that and Pliny goes along with it because of these two things. They're, they are ruining economic activity. They're not acting the way we want them to act in, in economics and in politics. And so just like put all these pieces together. When the Romans talked about the Christians, they did not care what the Christians believed. They cared about the Christians in terms of economics, in terms of social norms, and in terms of political norms. And I think there's two really big things that we need to take out of that. Um, the first is maybe the smaller of the two things, and that's just to ask ourselves, like, is that how the world sees us now as Christians? 
How much do we blend in with our culture? Or would people say about us, yeah, they're a little socially weird and they're a little bit economically weird and they're a little bit politically weird. Um, I think for a lot of us, that's really uncomfortable because we don't want to seem weird. But what those Christians understood is that that's part of believing in a religion unlike any other. Now we're going to work out in the rest of the series what exactly they were doing that was weirdly social um, and some of the things about weird political beliefs and that sort of thing, at least from there, uh, from the Romans' point of view. But what I want you to understand now, and this is something I've, I've said before, but it's so powerful for me, is that um, the Romans first identified the Christians as a political group. So the, the term Christian was not something that, that the Christians made up for themselves. It was something that was given to them by others because this group of people were not participating in politics the same way as everybody else. Christianoi in Greek was the same kind of structured word as like the political parties that existed in Rome at that time. So like the way we say like liberal or conservative or, or NDP or green or peoples or whatever. Like if you're part of one of those parties... Um, then you have that, that name. The, the Romans gave this new political name to these Christians because they wouldn't participate the same way in politics. And so what I think we all need to ask ourselves is, do we participate in the world the same way as the world? Or are we so distinct as to like need someone to call us by a different name because we don't fit in with everybody else's norms? That was what it was at least true of the early Christian church. Okay, so ask yourself right now, do I spend my money like everyone else? Do I spend my time like everyone else? Am I looking for the next bit of entertainment or the next bit of relaxing just like everybody else? Am I just living for my vacations or for my retirement? Am I listening to the same kind of music? Am I reading the same type of news? Am I, am I thinking about things the same way everybody else is? Like as I evaluate my life, am I blending in with culture or am I distinct from it? So that's the first thing I think we can learn from this, from just the way people viewed the Christians at that time. But I think there's a deeper thing and a, a more foundational thing about our understanding of our relationship with the world as Christians. And that's this. Um, opposition to the church is almost never theological, at least from the world. Okay. Um, it, is, it is very rare that the world will come to Christians and say, that specific theological conviction that you have, that is unacceptable and we are going to imprison you or we are going to kill you for it. Now, it does happen, of course. But if you look across history, and especially in the early Christian church, which is probably most akin to what we're experiencing right now, just in the way that Rome was organized and the way Western society is organized today, um, that was not the case. So, like, what we should never expect is that the culture or the government or the police or something like this is going to come into our church and say, we're going to start arresting you guys because you believe that Jesus' body and blood is truly present in, with, and under the bread and the wine. Or, you know, we're going to shut this church down because you guys are preaching all about Jesus and how he forgives people and stuff. Like, they're not going to do that. And that's not what the Romans did either. They frankly didn't care what the Christians were believing. What they wanted was Christianity to be something that people did in some of their time, but otherwise they operated like everybody else in the world. And this makes sense, I think, when you understand the nature of Satan, right? So think about how Satan comes and tempts you personally. He doesn't come and show himself to you in all of his darkness and evil and say, deny Jesus. Like he doesn't do that because that's way too obvious. It would be way too easy for you to say, that's Satan and I'm not okay with Satan. Um, no, I'm not going to deny Jesus, right? So what Satan chooses to do is he chooses to work in subtle ways. He chooses to work on the fringes of your life, never really going directly after the gospel, but going after other things that might eventually allow him to get to the gospel. 
And this is exactly what he chooses to do also through culture and society and government to try to attack the church. He very rarely uses the government in a full frontal attack against the church. But what he will do through culture, society, through government, through all of those, is he will go after things that are not necessarily the gospel in hopes that he can subtly get to the gospel. Um, so let me give you a couple examples of this, maybe just to like help you envision this. Um, so one of the things our culture talks about is how it's okay for you to preach that Jesus is you know, forgiving and that he's loving and that he's generous and he's compassionate and all these things. But it's not so much okay to talk about like sin or people's wickedness or their sinful nature, their desire to sin that they're born with, that they can't escape. Um, you can't tell people that they're bad people. You're totally okay preaching the gospel that Jesus forgives people, but you can't tell people that they're bad people or at least not too much. That's how our culture operates, right? And, and I think Christians, we can get a little bit okay with that because we're like, well, you know, the gospel is the most important message and that's what we're trying to communicate. And so, yeah, if we go a little bit easier on the law then, and just preach the gospel, just tell people about Jesus' love, they're going to be fine. Um, if you look at least demographically, statistically, at what has happened in the last 50 years or so since Jesus as loving God, but not as also righteous judge has been preached— and how Christianity has been affected by that preaching, it's pretty obvious that it's not working. Um, people don't need a God who just loves them for no reason, right? Uh, they don't see that as, as anything valuable because they don't see that they need anything from him or that they've offended him in any way. Um, and, and the result is actually we've lost people in the church even as we continue to preach the gospel because we're not preaching the law. You see how this subtly works, how Satan can sort of eviscerate the gospel without telling us that he's eviscerating the gospel by telling us not to preach the law. Or maybe another way that uh, this can happen. Um, Satan will tempt us to say, you know what, we can make sure we go to church, we can listen to our pastor, maybe we listen to a Christian podcast or read a Christian book or whatever, but you don't want to be so out of touch with society and culture that you seem like a weirdo. And so he'll say, well, you know, yeah, like that's what, you know, the Bible says about drinking, or that's what the Bible says about sex, or that's what the Bible says about how you treat authority, or that's what the Bible says about how you treat property. But I mean, you don't want to be weird, right? You don't want to stand out from your culture. You don't want to be one of those people that everybody like kind of has to look at twice and, and, and wonder about. You don't want to be one of those people. And so make sure that you're kind of still doing most of the things that people do, right? Or maybe he'll say, like, you can listen to your pastor and listen to the Bible, but make sure you're not so out of touch with society that you don't know what's going on in the world. So make sure you're listening to the news and social media and all these things so you know what's going on in the world. Well, you see what he's doing. He's never saying you can't listen to Jesus. He's always saying you have to listen to Jesus and make sure you have all these other things that can dilute it. Maybe to say it um, a little bit differently, uh, how about with your kids? Like Satan will say, well, you want your kids to grow up really well. And so... Yeah, it's important to like get them in Bible stuff and make sure they're in Sunday school or whatever. But you know, you don't want them to be so like out of touch with like sports or arts or education. You need to make sure you spend some time on those things. Well, see what he, he hasn't done is hasn't said, don't teach your kids about Jesus. He's just filled up their schedule with all sorts of other things so that Jesus becomes one of many things that they think about. Or here's another one. Um, government comes to us as, as a church and says, you can't meet together. You can, you can keep preaching, you can keep speaking the word of God to each other, and, and you can still be a church, but you just can't meet together for a little while because we're trying to protect people. Now, look, it's, it seems like a reasonable request, and it's even got a good intention, like we're here, we're here to protect people. But it's actually backdoor attacking the very way that Christianity is set up to worship. 
It's taking away people's Christian community. It's taking away their ability to encourage one another, pray for one another, see one another. It's definitely taking away their ability to receive the Lord's Supper, which is the heart of our worship. And so you can see this. None of this is really intentional on the part of anyone in culture or anyone in society, but it is Satan working through the things around us to try to attack us. And he never full frontal goes after the gospel. He always tries to tempt us with something else that is sort of a backdoor way to get into the gospel. Now think of this from an ancient Christian point of view. So you're an ancient Christian, you believe in Jesus, um, but the the Roman government is kind of on your case because you won't make sacrifices to Artemis in, in Ephesus. And so you say, you know what? Whatever, I can just throw a few bucks at the throw a few bucks at the at the, the goddess Artemis, and, and then the Romans will get off my case. I can just worship normally as a Christian. Um, that might seem like a pretty reasonable thing, and you might even say to yourself, "I don't believe in any of that," but I'm just I'm just trying to you know go about my business. But the early Christians did not see it that way. They saw themselves as completely devoted to Jesus, and that made them a little bit socially and economically and politically weird. It also fueled a movement that took over the Roman Empire, and I think we need to be very aware of that. Um, Because like I said, it is so easy for us to believe that we have to wait for this full frontal attack on the church in order to call something an attack of Satan or a persecution. Now, God be praised that we don't actually have to go through the physical persecution that the church had to go through in these early first centuries. But let's not for a minute think that Satan is not trying any harder against us today than he was against the church 2,000 years ago. Now, that's the reality of what happened. We have to ask ourselves this question how did they do it? <laughs> like, how did the Christians who were in a world where basically everybody hated them and, and there were so few of them, how are they able to become a movement that took over the Roman world in, in three and a half or three centuries or so? And uh, the answer actually comes to us right from this text that we read from second Corinthians four, the very last verse of the text, Paul writes that we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So this was their hope. This is what kept them going. This is the power source they kept drawing on that allowed them to stand up in the face of an entire empire that was essentially against them. I mean, you have to understand, Paul is writing these words when Christians make up 0.005% of the population of the Roman Empire. I mean, they are minuscule. And yet Paul says, we have this. And it eventually took over the empire. Um, Paul is essentially saying, look, guys, I know everything is against us. Everyone is against us, but we have eternal life in Jesus. And that was enough for them. David Brooks, he's an author uh, for the New York Times. He wrote this. He said, we are all fragile when we don't know what our purpose is. When we haven't thrown ourselves with abandon into a social role. When we haven't committed ourselves to certain people. When we feel like a swimmer in an ocean with no edge. If you want to make people tough, make them idealistic for some cause, make them tender for some person, make them committed to some worldview that puts today's temporal pain in the context of a larger hope. Emotional fragility, which by the way, our culture is struggling with severely emotional fragility. He says emotional fragility seems like a psychological problem, but it has only a philosophical answer. People are really tough only after they have taken a leap of faith for some truth or mission or love. Once they've done that, they can withstand a lot. We live in an age where it is considered sophisticated to be disenchanted, but people who are enchanted are the real tough cookies. See, our life 
is built to be disenchanting. Life is screaming at you that all that matters is right now and what you can see and what you can touch and what you can experience. It's essentially a materialist worldview. It is a disenchanted worldview. There is nothing fantastic about this world, just what you can see. And that is breeding emotional fragility in so many of us. But what the Christians had is a hope, an enchanting that went beyond this life. The promise, the knowledge that Jesus was going to give them eternal life so that if they were never a success in this life, life was bigger than this. If they they never accomplished their goals, life was bigger than this. If they never lived up to their potential, life was bigger than this. If they never found somebody to marry, their life was bigger than this. If they died young or got sick or got fired, life was bigger than this. If they were depressed or anxious or in pain, life was bigger than this. If no one cared about them, everyone excluded them, life was bigger than this. They were so enchanted by this message that eternal life was given to them in Jesus that the things around them didn't bother them. They were so convinced that they had been given something bigger than this life that this life seemed like a minuscule problem in comparison. And this isn't just anecdotal from the the work of a New York Times columnist. Um, Viktor Frankl uh, was an Austrian uh, neurologist and psychologist during the Second World War. He was a prisoner at Auschwitz. And um, being a neurologist and a psychologist, when he was in the camp, other prisoners in the camp would come to him for essentially therapy because that's what he did in the outside world. Um, And what he, he noticed in working with these people is that the people who had a transcendent hope, by that I mean a hope that cannot be touched by the circumstances of life, they were far more capable to deal with the problems of being in a concentration camp, at least psychologically, than those who didn't have a transcendent hope. Viktor Frankl wrote a book, and in the book he accounts a number of these uh, interactions. And one that is particularly interesting is he talks about a man who had a dream that the war was going to end on a certain day of the month. And so this man had just intense positivity. He was super excited for the war to end because he had had this dream. But as the date got closer and it became more and more obvious that the war was not going to end, he became not only psychologically despondent and broken down, but also physically broken down. Um, Frankel recounts that actually the day before the day he predicted the war would end, he contracted a disease. And the day after the day he predicted the war would end, he died of that disease. And Frankel's conclusion is that if you do not have a transcendent hope, if all your happiness, all your security, all your peace is based on your circumstances, then you are weak and you are going to fall apart. And so if I can be very frank with you, or Frankel, as the case may be, um, if your happiness is wrapped up in your success or your wealth or your family or your reputation or the rise and fall of COVID cases or your province or your political party, if your hope is in anything that the circumstances of life can touch, it is not transcendent and therefore you are weak. You will not be able to withstand real trouble in your life. But if you have the living hope That is not just an abstract idea, but the real verifiable historical evidence that Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be God and then proved it by fulfilling his own prophecy to rise from the dead after he was crucified. And that 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 historical event means that you can live forever, that you can know, like Paul knows, that you have an eternal hope in Jesus, then you can take on anything. Who cares if you have no money? Who cares if you have no friends? Who cares if you have no success? Who cares if you don't live very long? You have eternal life with God. 
Now, the beautiful thing is that God still chooses to bless us with all those things. But what we have is a transcendent hope outside of those things. That our joy every morning cannot be based on how successful I was yesterday, how much I am liked, how much money I make, what kind of house I live in, what kind of car I drive, what people think of me, how many likes I get, how many retweets I get. None of it matters for our true peace and happiness because we know that we have eternal life in Jesus. And I need to hear that. (laughs) And I think you do too. Because as much as I would like to believe that that is how I operate every day, I am fragile. I am quickly broken down by, by the feeling that I'm not successful, that I'm not living up to people's expectations, that I could be doing so much more, that I could be better behaved, that I could take care of myself or take care of my family or take care of my congregation better. I am so fragile and so easily angered by myself and by others. And Paul gets it. The Bible gets it. Paul writes this to us in the first verse of the text. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Jars of clay are are very fragile, very easily chipped, very easily cracked, very easily destroyed. Paul says we're like that. We're jars of clay. And yet contained in us, like a beautiful plant in in a jar of clay, is this treasure, this promise of eternal life. And he says that the reason is to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In other words, he says, when fragile people like us, like everyone, can go through life with an amazing amount of anti-fragility, that shows that we are plugged into something that is not merely of this world, but is the enchanting message of the truth of Christianity that life does not end here, that this world is not all that matters. There is something bigger and better and more beautiful that has been given to you in Jesus. And when people see that in my life, in your life, they start to see the beauty of the gospel. They start to see that, that this life is not all that there is, that a person can be anti-fragile, in a world of intense fragility. There's frankly no reason that the early Christian church should have been more than a footnote, a flash in the pan in the Roman Empire, but it took over the empire because it believed in that. Now, this will be difficult, no doubt. Um, Your sinful nature will plague you. Satan will not want you to believe it. Living contrary to the world, living distinct from the world is definitely a challenge. But Paul gives us this great phrase, and it's just maybe an axiomatic way of thinking about your life so that you can kind of empower yourself with these words. And and it's these words from verse 10 of the text. He says, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. If you understand what the Bible says, that in baptism you were crucified with Christ, that your life as you used to live it is over, that your life is guaranteed in Jesus, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, and that because you have experienced Jesus' death and your own death, therefore, that the life that you now live is Jesus' life in you. It is not your life. You are, in a sense, a mercenary bought and paid for by the blood of Jesus to work in this world on his behalf without any damage possible to who you are or what you have been guaranteed in Jesus. You carry around the death of Jesus in your body, knowing that you have already died in Christ so that the life that Jesus gives you can be flowing out of you and empowering every moment of your life. Look, this is, this is a powerful message, and it can change the world. It already has. 
for a small group of Christians in a big Roman empire. And I hope also for a small group of Christians in a big city like Toronto, a big country like Canada, a big world that, that doesn't believe this message anymore. So let's be willing to be distinct. Let's trust that God is the one who goes before us and goes behind us, that he has given us this eternal life as a gift, that he protects us and that he provides for us until we get to fully realize that eternal life, which has been guaranteed to us in Jesus. Let's hold on to that reality, come what may, and be distinct from this world. God grant that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you called us into discipleship out of our sin, out of our old priorities, out of our responsibility for our own life. And we ask now that you would purpose us as your disciples to live distinctly from this world. Satan is a wily foe. He chooses not to come against your gospel full frontal where we would maybe notice him, but chooses to be subtle. And so we need your Holy Spirit to help us discern his attacks, to bring the word of God to bear against those attacks and to stand firm against them. I pray that you would make us a beacon of light in this community, a group of people that the world looks at and says there is something different about them. I pray that through all of it, you would protect us from outright persecution so we don't have to go through pain or suffering for the sake of your name. But if that is the case, then I also ask for the peace that that you gave us in your promise that when we suffer, we are like Christ. We are being ever conformed to his image. We are experiencing his death in our mortal bodies so that his life can be experienced by us forever in immortality. We ask all those things in your name. Amen.